Welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. So um, I'm going to do some intros. My name is Ed Cotton. Welcome to the latest edition of Inspiring Futures. This is a podcast where we talk about the high, how, why, and what of the future. I'm delighted that today uh, my guest is uh, Lawrence Wilkinson. Lawrence has a long history of thinking about and talking about the future and consulting on the future. Um, So I'm delighted to hear his perspective. Um, And as I do with um, all our guests, I like to um, get them to do a quick introduction, uh, basically a 30-second resume, um, to get us started. So over to you, Lawrence. Well, thank you, Ed. It's a treat to be with you. Um, I'm Lawrence Wilkinson. I have spent my adult life, for all practical purposes, spent it starting companies with friends, a variety of different kinds of enterprises in which I've played one kind of role or another as they've grown. Uh, One of those was uh, a company called the Global Business Network, GBN, which I actually stuck with for 10 years as the president and as one of the practitioners. We were the firm that brought a technique called scenario planning to the world. Uh, Scenario planning being a kind of disciplined approach to thinking constructively about the future in a way that helps organizations, be they companies or unions or governments or NGOs, make more effective decisions in the moment. So um, GBM was started in what year? Well, it technically in 1987, we really got going. Uh, yeah, it really got going in 1988. 88. And um, so how did you get, how did you just, maybe we should talk about a little bit about the background of what, who started GBN um, and who, who the principals were and where they came from? Well, as I say, my it, it, this was all about, uh, as most of my uh, endeavors in life have been working with friends, uh, I had an old friend, Peter Schwartz, uh, who had been at SRI, where much earlier in that decade, he and I had collaborated on a couple of projects. Uh, and another friend at SRI back then, a guy named Jay Ogilvie, who had been a tenured professor of philosophy at Yale who walked on that to come out to Silicon Valley and and think creatively about society in the future. Um, We had had fun working together back then and decided it'd be fun to do that again. Uh, Peter had left SRI, gone to Royal Dutch Shell, where scenario planning as we know it was effectively developed. had involved uh, Jay, me, and a couple of other friends in uh, in sort of helping do the thinking they were doing. Uh, we all thought this was a technique that could probably be of much broader use than just in one company, uh, and in fact tried to convince Shell to create a subsidiary to take it out to the world, to which they said, no, look, we're an oil company it's a good idea you guys do it we'll be your first client so peter j stuart brand um who you know of the whole earth catalog Mm -hmm. and the well and all of those things Mm -hmm. 
and a gentleman named Napier Collins, uh, who uh, had had been at Shell and worked very closely with Peter uh, and I, the five of us formed GBN, quickly grabbed a bunch of other fellow travelers and hit the highway. So, um, what an interesting, what an interesting um, group of people, for starters, obviously. I mean, some of those I'm familiar with. Um, GBN, in a way, because I remember when I first moved to the Bay Area, um, it wasn't actually the first time. I had, I, had, I had a colleague of mine, actually he was one of my team members, who was at Cal and had heard of GBN and he said, well, you know they have talks and things or something along the lines. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up a couple of times, at least a couple of times going over um, to Berkeley, right? Um, yeah, well, Emeryville. But Emeryville, yeah, Emeryville. Yeah. And um, hanging out with some very interesting people. But I had sort of also been familiar, um, yeah, with GBN for, for a while. Um, it was sort of on my radar screen as a planner. Um, I, was always, I was always interested in who, who were the authorities on the future. Um, who was who? Who was actually? Were there any organizations? And um, there was a, there was a company. I remember I worked on Unilever, big Unilever project for a number of years. And um, the client of mine, who became a pretty good friend, um, said, "Have you heard of, ever heard of um, Risk?" And I said, "No." I, you mean the board game? She said, "No, no, no. It's a it's a." Um, it's research international sociocultural or something like that. It was it was mm-hmm. it was a, in Bates in Switzerland. She said, you know, it costs a million dollars a year to be a subscriber. Um, and I'll give you I'll give you access to this stuff. And literally, this is this is well before the internet age and well before anything was really digitalized. About three weeks later, four boxes of research reports delivered to my desk which contained the sum total of the annual output of risk (laughs) and there were lots of diagrams in there about the way in which society was moving and then there was a whole book of semiotics where they literally taken a bunch of print ads and tried to classify them using semiotic um, techniques so I was kind of excited by this and also was sort of baffled a little bit was their, their client list was extraordinary. I mean, they had 50 of the Fortune 500 who were paying a million dollars. Um, and um, I wasn't sure if anyone was understood how to interpret this <laughs> um, stuff that was coming through. But um, yeah, at about the same time, I think um, I remember, um, you know, uh, this, was, this was in the 90s, um, hearing, hearing about GBM. So... For those, for those of listeners, if we have listeners, when you hope we do, um, uh, let's talk a little bit about scenario planning because scenario planning was really the product, the service that you were providing. And do you want to explain in layman's terms what scenario planning is? Yeah, well, scenario planning is, is a, a disciplined way of looking out into the future. Um, it, you, one picks a time horizon. Uh, often it's something like 10 years. It can be 
15, even 20, though when you start trying to look much further than that, uh, it, it gets pretty, uh, pretty airy. Um, if you try to go, it, 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 well, you look about that far out, starting from a set of decisions that you need to make, uh, grounding your exploration in what we called big bang long fuse decisions. So you'd start with, by that we meant big bang, these are things that you're actually gonna have to decide in the next six to 12 months, let's say, maybe 18. Things that if you get them right will be huge victories, if you get them wrong, will be enormously painful. You know, do we or don't we enter this new geography? You know, do we or don't we buy this company? Do we or don't we make this huge R and D investment? You know, whatever. Um, so you start from those questions. Look about ten years out, using a a, a kind of disciplined process that I'll, I'll I'll sort of give you a shorthand version of. You start by asking yourself, okay, these these questions. Uh, we're going to decide what are the things going on in the world around us, social, economic, political, technological, things in our industry, things that are, that are going to have an impact as they play out on whether the decisions we make turn out to be wise or not so wise, but things over which we don't have control. So things that are uncertain, importantly uncertain, that we can't determine. We make a long list of those things and map them back to the decisions so it's clear not just that they matter but how they matter we then winnow that list uh through uh, a, a kind of ranking but more importantly a kind of conflation until we come up with usually two um, key uncertainties uh, that we can use in effect as axes it's not always two but it's usually two axes that we can cross so imagine an x-axis mm -hmm. and a y-axis crossing in the middle uh you might it, it one might run from i'll use really sort of dumb generic examples but one axis might run from weak economy to strong economy one axis might run from uh you know, strong consumer interest in your product to weak consumer interest in your product. I mean, you know, it, it, sure. they're usually much more specific and grounded than that. But just by way of illustration, one then populates each of those four quadrants with stories. The characters in which, if you will, are the very driving forces that you've identified. Right. So you go back in and play out how they would work to get you from where those axes cross, which is today to any of the four corners, which is, let's say, 10 years from now. Having done that, uh, you've got four really rich, interesting, different stories about the world around you. You then go back to your questions um, and you, scenario by scenario, do a thought experiment. I mean, the one thing we know is that none of these caricature futures is going to play out the way we've hundred percent them right the point is not to do four futures in the hope that one of them is right the real future is almost always a kind of roiling mix of all of them but yep. we do a thought experiment at this stage where we say okay let's assume that like you know the millionth monkey that accidentally typed hamlet this 
northeastern quadrant, this story we just told, is actually going to come true exactly as we told it. So unlike all of our competitors and everyone else in the world who has no idea what's going to happen, can't know, we do. What would we do to perfect our strategy in that future? Mm-hmm. How would we answer those questions? How would we perfect it? We do that for each of the four scenarios and then step back and essentially parse all of the results of those four thought experiments into two buckets. One bucket has three little subcompartments. Uh, it turns out as you look across all the implications you've surfaced, there's some things that are affirmatively smart in all four scenarios. Well, if that's true, then that's pretty much a no-brainer, right? You want to do that. Uh, other thing, it's not usually a large set. The next subcompartment is usually larger. Things that are really smart in one or two scenarios, but don't really cost you much in the others. Think of them as no regret. And then there's a subset of things sometimes um, that are on a corporate agenda, organizational agenda, that kind of they keep coming up in meetings, they keep consuming consulting time, whatever, but they never really kind of happen. Uh, they just won't go away. So you can observe they don't make sense in any scenario, drag them around behind the barn, beat them to death with an axe handle and recover that mind share, right? So what all three of these subcategories have in common is there things that for all the uncertainty you've identified and explored, these things make sense to list and do. You know, they are in effect robust implications. Right. In many ways, the more interesting implications are the second bucket. These are things that are importantly contingent. You know, if you're in one or two scenarios, it's absolutely key. But if you're in the others, ooh, it's really tough. If you're in the, you know, top half of the, the grid, it's absolutely key that you do X, but if you're in the bottom half, it's poison. Right. Uh, these are importantly contingent implications. So what we do there is two two step process. First, you look at it and say, okay, is there a way to rethink the implication? In effect, re-engineer it, deconstruct it. So there's a first step that can be at least no regret. In other words, can we buy time to learn what's happening? You know, better. Um, Sometimes you can do that. Sometimes you can't. You can't sort of buy another company, right? You can. You, <laughs> you either are, uh, you aren't. Yeah. So when you can't, then what you do um, is you go back into your stories and identify what we call early warning signals or signs. Uh, early warning signs are those indicators, those things you would see if the world is tending in a given direction, and you literally map those early warning signs onto the grid alongside the robust, the, the contingent implications so that you get a kind of if then early warning system. If you see these things, then you do these things. Uh, and it, it, so what you end up with is a kind of map of the future that can carry you into the future a list of things you can get immediately on with, but probably more importantly, a set of, of considerations you can watch over time, each one of which promises strategic advantage if you act on it when it's appropriate to act on it. So 
the it seems that there was it seems that there's a parallel to military strategy in some way. There's some there's something here that seems. I know the time horizon is obviously going to be different, but there seems to be some wargaming. Well, we often there, there there is I think at a kind of conceptual level yeah. an absolute uh, uh, parallel. We would also do sometimes in the course of these projects. We would um, so we would do everything I just said. We'd get to that place, and then with several clients over the years, I would then do an exercise where I'd break the same group. One of the great things about doing this process is that consultants don't do it for the client. We would run a process, you know, we'd supply research help and a lot of facilitation, but the actual thinking would be done by the client. Right. So when we went away, they weren't, you know, required to read a report that they would or wouldn't read or wouldn't, wouldn't, would or wouldn't internalize. They actually own this stuff, right? They, they've done the thinking themselves. We would take that group and we would basically do wargaming. We would assign them to be, uh, you know, one small subset would be the client, but several other subsets would be competitors or other key constituents in their market. Uh, we would have them, we would help them do research into those players, uh, learn not just kind of what they did, but how they did it and why they did it. And we would then tell them their assignment was essentially to obliterate us, except for the group that was us and their assignment was to survive and prosper. And we would literally play war games. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's exactly as you suggest a wonderful way of making all of this real you play the war games by basically constructing a series of events that unfold through time that essentially are rooted in the early warning system so you 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 say okay here's today what would you do now this happens how does simulation on yeah exactly yeah so 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 back in we're talking back in the mid 80s here uh, Wall Street, Gordon Gecko era. Is that, am I right? This is. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I mean, what basically, I think the way to understand why scenario planning as we practiced it sort of emerged when it did. If you think about the period from the end of World War II until, uh, well, it actually started unraveling in 1976, but most people didn't notice it till the early 80s. Um, we had been in a period of of essentially oligopolistic lock-in mm-hmm. uh you know the most of the economy was characterized by large players that innovated on a schedule uh that competed but in a gentlemanly like way and i use that word advisedly because they were almost all men um and you know it it, it was all very orderly I mean, all the, it was a kind of a fractal thing all the way up to, I mean, the world was organized by the Cold War, right? I mean, it was just, there were these sort of stable tensions that defined everything. Uh, concepts like career really mattered. Uh, and in a, in a period like that, the, the, the genius of the economy, if you will, the thing that made it work was what you might call consumptivity, the ability of consumers to buy more and more and more. Right. Starting in 1976, 
with you know some technological uh, advances that begin to make their way into the marketplace, PCs and things like that. But also, importantly, two important uh, sort of regulatory initiatives. Seventy six was when Carter was elected and. Uh, he actually announced before he was sworn in in 77 that his attorney general was going to be Griffin Bell and his uh, head of the FAA was going to be Alfred Kahn. Griffin Bell filed the two huge antitrust suits, mm-hmm. one against IBM and one against AT&T, mm-hmm. that broke up those industries. I mean, I, the IBM suit was dismissed or dropped by the Reagan administration, but it had its effect in the meantime. And Alfred Kahn was the guy who deregulated the airlines. Uh, so basically the jams got kicked out the cozy comfortable club yeah and we we entered a period that we've basically been in ever since of transition where the genius of the economy isn't consumptivity it's productivity where there are huge redistributions of wealth and economic power that are you know basically technology uh, sort of enabled by lower regulation and constraint uh, outruns the ability of incumbents to contain it. So there's just, you know, success has a shorter half-life. It's funny, it's it, it, one way you can think about it, 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 it. Up until the early 80s, the market sold up on good employment news. From about that point on, it sold down <laughs> because that implied lower productivity. Until recently, which is a whole other conversation, but implies we may be headed back into a, a more lockdown kind of a locked in kind of period. But, but the point is that scenario planning is first and foremost a way, it's a recognition of the fact that there are hugely uncertain forces that matter absolutely to how we move forward effectively. Uh, so it's not an accident, it was born when it was. So, 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 um, so, so you started it, and what you're suggesting is there was sort of there was a market for what you were doing because the conditions demanded that executives suddenly needed to have a grasp on where they were. Previously, they knew where they were heading. Now, yeah, they didn't. I mean, Robert McNamara, you know, we mm-hmm. remember as the Secretary of Defense, but yep. before that, uh, he was the Ford. young whiz kid head of Ford. Right? Yep where um, one of the things he was most famous for was creating a, a very, and it's important to say it was in its time, a very successful management regime he called program management, mm. which was a strategic planning protocol that it's only slightly oversimpled to characterize as, you know, so it's time to plan for next year. Next year is going to be a lot like this year, only bigger. Right. And the thing is, that worked for a long time. It worked until it didn't. And when it stopped working, people began to realize, oh, you know, we need to think in a different way about the future and the uncertainty it holds. So, um, so you had a, you had a, you had a market that that, that that was interested in what you were doing and needed what you were doing. Fast forward to today, my my. Um, speculation and it is merely speculation is that um the future doesn't get a lot of respect um and why i think that is is because we are less capable of predicting it and i know that gbn was never about predicting a um 
binary yes or no. It was always about creating scenarios. But I do feel there's sort of um, people's tenures in their jobs are less. I don't know what the average CEO is. I just read that the average CMO was 40 months. Uh, um, the tenures are less, the loyalty is less, um, and we are seemingly incapable of, um, incapable of predicting uh, advances, uh, and things do change on a seemingly f- faster level than they have. Maybe that is true, or maybe it isn't, but I, I've seen some exponential growth curves of various technologies in enough presentations mm-hmm. to believe that is the case. And if you look at Mary Meeker's um, trends deck every year, it always seems to be a pretty much a constant of that exhilaration when we have admittedly um, in the last few years seen a slowdown in things like smartphone adoption and stuff like that. So there is, maybe we are at the end of a exponential technology growth curve um, when we're about to enter a new phase. But it seemed to me that I don't read about scenario planning. I don't hear about people really caring about the future or being, um, I mean, not caring. I, I think they do care about the future. Being able to be disciplined about the future, I guess, is the correct way to well, describe it. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think, I think perhaps you're right. Uh, but I wonder, I mean, it, it, I think it's partly for the reasons you've enumerated. I, I might add a couple to the list. I think the financialization of our economy has caused uh, people, as it were, you know, in the context of their planning horizons, in effect, to drop their eyes to the ground, right? I mean, it, when people are worried about this quarter, yep. uh, then, uh, you know, thinking in a longer term is something that in a guilty sort of way, we all know we should do but we just don't because we get fired if we don't deal with this quarter kind of thing. Uh, I still do scenario planning work. Uh, at this point in my career, I'm lucky enough to be able to do it largely. I still have, it's funny, I still work with old friends who've been clients forever. Mm-hmm. So there are still big companies that mm-hmm. do it, but mm-hmm. uh, I now get to do it largely pro bono with NGOs and universities and, and right. things like that. But, right. but I, so there is still some interest in it. But I think, you you know, I'm also very involved now with an organization called the Long Now Foundation. Yeah. My old partner, Stuart Brand Foundation. Yep. Very familiar with them. Well, which is just largely, I mean, it, it does a lot of things. But I mean, if you had, if I had to boil its mission down, it's helping people be good ancestors. You know, it's, it's, it's an, it, it is a response to precisely the phenomenon. Isn't the famous, describing. isn't the famous Maybe you want to recount it because you're a better storyteller than me. Um, isn't isn't one of the apocryphal stories the story of the college in Oxford? No, the, it's not apocryphal. It's true. Okay. Um, yeah. It's true. No. In, in in the I think I, I'm gonna, I, I think it was the 15th century, but it might have been the early 16th century. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm terrible at dates, but New College Oxford was built. It's always amusing to me that something that old was New College, but. <laughs> Uh, it, it, it to this day, it's a gorgeous architectural treat to wander through it. Um, one of the crown jewels in which is a dining hall that is huge, long, you know, like the Harry Potter dining hall, which was actually Christchurch, but you know, it's that kind of thing that has running down the center of its pitched roof a single beam that's something like 400 feet long or something. I mean, it's just hugely long. 
Uh, when these guys built it way back when, they were smart enough to realize that it wasn't going to last. It would last a long time, but it wouldn't last forever. Uh, and you couldn't cut a single beam from a tree that was shorter than it needed to be long, right? Which meant the tree had to be very, very old. So New College acquired a piece of land. At, at a, <laughs> it was at the time outside of Oxford. Oxford's now kind of grown around New College Forest, but they acquired this land, planted a forest to grow the next beam. Right. So for hundreds, hundreds of years in the future, that's being a good ancestor. Right. So, um, yeah, really, a really good story about forward thinking and, and the long now, you know, it's that Stuart's. Is that Stuart's? Is it Stuart's, the main force behind the long now? Well, he, he yeah, he's he has recruited lots of old friends and new friends. Uh, yeah to it. it it's now you know it, it's involved in the clock it's involved in the rosetta project which was you know a, a, an effort to codify all of the known languages in the world uh with an eye to helping preserve them uh it hatched the revive and restore project which is about backward breeding <clears throat> species using uh the dna recovered dna of extinct species as a target to be able to repopulate the world with extinct species, everything from the passenger pigeon to the woolly mammoth. I mean, it's doing a lot of things now, uh, but they all have in common that they're about thinking in the very long term about being a good ancestor. So so um, going, going back to the very start of the conversation where you said there was, we sort of, the 76, 86 period, we've got a period where stability has sort of is breaking down and, and we've got a we've got government action to upend monopolies and we've got sort of technology on the rise and we've got a number of if you would have looked at it, you had a number of forces that were driving likely to drive uncertainty and change. Could you not look at twenty nineteen and say there's a similar, not the same thing, but something else, something like it is going on right now. We've got an extraordinary, we had an extraordinary presidential election um, a couple of years ago. We have a Brexit situation in the UK that is appending politicians in the political process. We've got a backlash, a massive backlash against Silicon Valley and technology that has been driving our future for the last 20 plus years. Um, and, you know, we, we sort of, we've got people talking about, um, um, what do, what do, what's the phraseology called? Um, I'm, I'm totally spacing on it. Minimum wage, it's not minimum wage, it's a- Oh, uh, universal basic income. Universal basic income. And some, some uh, regions experimenting with that. We got Ray Dalio uh, writing in uh, link on LinkedIn about the end of American capitalism, and he's uh, one of the greatest beneficiaries of American capitalism. Mm -hmm. So you could point at a lot of these signals, and, I, and I'm wondering if in your work with uh, the people you're working with, the NGOs, y you're you're seeing there's some similarities here in terms of these big forces of change um, that are likely to lead to 
uh, in directions we don't quite know exactly what they might be, but they're definitely big forces out there. Well, yeah, I mean, they're certainly analogous. I mean, they're different than yep. they were, I mean, you know, back in the day, but, but they're of, if you will, a similar amplitude. If I had to call out a difference, uh, I, it would be at the level of strategic implication. Uh, it's funny, you know, back in, in, in the, in the late eighties, early nineties, when we were putting this stuff to work in, in companies, while there was a huge degree of uncertainty, not just about direction, but about timing and, you know, all that really matters to businesses. Um, it was, we were very successful in helping companies come up with very successful strategies uh, that navigated all of this. And, and we feel very good about that because, you know, in the end, the thing about these big transitional periods is they create a lot of change. That change creates a lot of upheaval for the employees of companies that don't do well for, you know, I mean, and uh, the, the idea was try to help, reduce that friction, you know, reduce the number of people who had to be fired or the number of people who got, you know, mm -hmm. uh, disadvantaged. So it was that good. These days, uh, the scenarios are in some ways kind of more divergent and the strategic paths forward are harder to pick, if you will, harder to find. Yep. Um, doesn't mean they can't be found. But why are they like, hard? Why are they harder? Just sort of. Well, just because the uh, how to put it, you know, at the level you were describing, sort of the the socio political and yep. underneath that economic level, uh, we're looking at some pretty wildly different kinds of futures. Uh, if, you, if you contrast, uh, so it, it, I'm not going to try to do this on the fly, scenarically, but it, it, you know, you've got. Donald Trump, and I mean, to, to oversimplify uh, in a way I apologize in advance for, you've got Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. identifying many of the same ills, yep. but prescribing diametrically opposed remedies. Mm -hmm. And then you've got, uh, you know, so thinking uh, sort of, if you will, non-incrementally, you know, thinking discontinuously about how to address what's going on. And then you've got two different flavors of thinking about more, more continuity. You know, the people who believe we can incrementally make things fairer, more inclusive, more prosperous for everybody, and those who've basically, they won't say this out loud, but given up on that and are just about hanging on to what they've got. Uh, these are wildly different environments in which to try to operate a business. Yeah. And I'd submit it's not at all clear in which way the future, which way the future is going to unfold. But one thing, one thing you could argue is if you don't, you may not, you may not know, but you should have the discipline in place to ask yourself the difficult questions. Versus... Oh, well, exactly. And that's what we do. And, and, yeah. and it, it turns out, it's funny, you know, in, it's always smart 
to be nimble. It's always smart to be smart. Uh, you know, it's always, uh, you know, smart, I believe I, it, it pays dividends. I believe you can substantiate it pays dividends in the long run to be kind of on the side of the people you're trying to serve. You know, there, there are a bunch of sort of, they, they sound almost like truisms, but it's funny. I mean, in practice, uh, if those things were true as this period of transition we've lived through was ramping up in the eighties and nineties, geez, they're even truer now. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are those are hard things for large organizations to be. In terms of just because of the size they're at and the, and the well, just because and, they are, you know, organizations. Funny, you know, organizations are always created uh, to do the business they're there to do. But as they grow, protecting the business they are becomes a larger and larger part of what they're about until finally, I think in a lot of cases, it just eclipses the original purpose. And I might say that's also true of not-for-profits, not just of commercial ventures. So you mean they forget what they were in business to do in the well, first place, they or they, or they become- they don't forget it, it's just not as important to them as making sure that you know they there's still a, an office to come to tomorrow. They protect the status quo. Yeah. So, um, GBN, I mean, this is the pop side piece of it. Were you at GBN when they worked with Steven Spielberg? Or is that? Oh, yeah, yeah. So that seems to be a very interesting experience, not only because you were working with Hollywood, which was a, a new, probably a new type of client, or maybe not, but you were actually working on a, a, piece, of, a piece of fiction that has actually turned out to be pretty damn accurate. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, in, in fact, uh, we had some history in this. I Before I did GBN, I ran an animation and special effects company. And so uh, I'd actually kind of been in that business. And, uh -huh. and, and some of us had, had worked with Walter Parks and Larry, Walter and Larry on war games uh, and sneakers too, but war games in particular. So we had some history of this. Yeah, it was fun, and it was, and and you know, it was just about applying some of what we had done before. You know, a few years before they came to us, we had done a huge project with with a, with multiple clients on the future of advertising, um, in which we, you know, it, I mean, it wasn't. It was just a matter of discipline to uncover this stuff. It wasn't great insight, but there was, you know, highly likely to happen. So we were able to share that with them, and 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 you saw in Minority Report what you saw. Uh, I I I think you know we've had a very how should one put this a very rich and healthy relationship with sci-fi our whole, well, as an organization, our whole life and as individuals, our, our lives. Uh, you know, our, our, we drew on a network of contributing thinkers uh, when we did our work, and many of them were sci-fi writers, mm. uh, just because these are people who are extremely good at working through what it might mean to life if X happens. Yeah, one of the things. One of the things I was going to say. I was going to ask about that because um, I, 
I remember that being a very interesting part of you. In a way, it was your own social network. I mean, before social network mm -hmm. was even a phrase. But um, one of the things that's interested me a little bit is, um, and, and being a Brit, there's always this difference between sort of glass half full, glass half empty. You know, Brits tend to look on the downside as Americans sort of be over exuberant and positive. Um, probably one of the reasons I'm here, actually. Um, but a lot of the sci not sci-fi, but maybe a lot more of the pop culture certainly of the 50s obviously the cold war had a big transformative effect and that vietnam war had a big transformative effect but those was the future was a positive place generally it, it was things are going to get better you're going to be earning more money your kids are going to be doing better than you this is america is a land of prosperity and we're moving forward to the future we put men on the moon we're probably going to put them on mars you know hang on enjoy the ride and it does seem like the future has become not a positive future, you know. It's, uh, in, in pop culture, it's often, it's portrayed as dystopian, increasingly. I mean, I was asked to comment by Variety on uh, the Super Bowl ads this year, and there were a number of ads that, you know, robots are going to take over our jobs, um, blah, blah, blah. You know, there, there, is a, there is a narrative now that, the future doesn't look so positive. And then when you add, obviously, climate change and other things on, I'm not saying that these have never been there, it just seems that suddenly it's a difficult, it's a more difficult conversation because it isn't necessarily a positive one. Maybe 30 years ago, it was about globalization. It was about the potential of moving your brand into new markets. It was acquiring new consumers. It was new technologies that are going to revolutionize the experience for everyone. And the, the, the sense of prosperity that was going to come through that expansion. And, and I feel like maybe, we, maybe the future is a difficult conversation because it isn't necessarily a positive one in a country that is used to having positive conversations. Yeah, what's hard for me to know, I, I think you're right, I, what's hard for me to figure out is um, how much of that is to do with where the United States is in its arc of maturity. Um, I mean, it's funny if you think, I think I've probably got the dates very slightly wrong, but I think it was still the case in the mid-70s in the US that there was still a lot of optimism. I mean, if it wasn't, if progress is our most important product wasn't still GE's motto, you know, it had been until then. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, we were less than, we were a decade away from that, the 64 World's Fair, which was all about yep. how great the future was. I mean, all that stuff was still very much the deal. Whereas in the UK, you guys were, I mean, dealing with punk, right? Uh, it was a completely different uh, thing. And I think, you know, it, it, there was some of that here, people, you know, but, but it was largely drowned out by that, by what turned out to be the kind of last confident gasp of, the, of, that, of that big oligopolistic lock-in. Uh, then we shifted into this huge period of transition where lots of people lost. I mean, you know, between 76 and 81 or two, 
over half the Fortune 50 turned over. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was there was huge, you know, transition. That's a big, yeah. Um, but but a lot of people were winning, and it all felt kind of cool, right? And mm-hmm. on balance, the economy was rising. And then we hit the '90s, and you know, in retrospect, we realize we didn't, you know, we didn't behave in the '90s as we should have. But at the time, uh, it felt like you know god this is great you know we had the cold war was ending we had this dividend i mean it turned out not to be very wisely invested but still we you know and and anyway i i I don't want to give you a a pop history kind of thing here i just want to say i think part of it may be that i mean i think if you're in china right now it feels really exciting you know the, the attitude is very different yep much more like it was in the U.S. in mm-hmm. the 50s, 60s, mm-hmm. and 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're now a little more like you guys were in the 70s, you Brits. Yep. Uh, I don't know, maybe we're headed for where you are now. Who knows? Uh, but uh, it, it's just, it's hard for me to parse my perspective in that regard. And the other thing is, you know, I've been around for a, a long time, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm uh, an older American, to put it politely. And I'm mindful that uh, that has a lot to do with my perspective. You know, when I do this work now, I have to be, I want to be and have to be very careful to make sure there are lots of young people in the room right. <laughs> to offset, you know, my my biases. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm reminded every time I, I co-founded an organization called Common Sense Media mm-hmm. that... Uh, is well does a number of things but among them we've been at the forefront of the you know sounding the alarm about social media its impact on kids you know a lot of the stuff that's now very much in the public dialogue and and i I think we're right but i keep reminding myself that you know socrates thought the invention of writing was a tragedy right uh you know that (laughs) and and his reasoning wasn't wrong. It did, in fact, destroy memory as it had, you know, as he'd grown up knowing it. But I'm not sure that any of us would buy that that was a tragedy, right? I mean, right. you know, we we have a very different perspective on it than he did. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, but I think I think the point, the major point is the shift the shift in global order is significant. Um, and I would, I was reading, it wasn't that long ago, where you could actually find writing articles about some of the global multinationals uh, kind of pushing America down to second tier status. That, that um, you know, with with the bifurcation of of incomes and the haves and the have-nots, then America looked a little bit more like a a country on an, another continent um, than it had resembled before, and therefore strategies needed to apply. You, you, and and you see this, you see this in consumer markets. You see the premiumization of goods, and you see the um, democratization and low pricing of goods. And oh yeah. And, you know, for brands that are caught in the middle, that is a trouble. That is a, a troublesome spot. 
um, where you've got a lot of consumer packaged goods companies who are who are sort of struggling. They can't really premiumize and they haven't been able to cut costs out, out enough to offer value and private labels kind of swooped in and taken that. So, um, you know, that's to me what's happened is, 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 is the, it's what's happened to America. It's not to say there isn't optimism in other parts of the world. Um, and, um, you know, there was a, one of the, I guess, the successes of global capitalism, if there has been anything uh, to point to, is, um, you know, third world countries became a developing economies and did go through, we have seen some big transformations in uh, developing countries as far as incomes of concern and, and getting people out of poverty. There's been some amazing things going on. But as far as companies sitting in America looking at the domestic market, there's definitely, it seems to me, like you should, if you care about the future of this country, you should be caring about the future of this country. There are a lot of critical issues. And it seems that politics or politicians, I mean, maybe this will be a topic of the next elections, but so far they haven't proved capable of being able to tackle um, these issues. They've been delayed. Well, or aggravated. I oh, mean, it's yeah. interesting. I, you know, uh, have had occasion, as you probably have, to work with a lot of companies that are global in their in their prospect. And so, you know, I I try to stay up to date on markets. You know, I read the OECD reports and those sorts of things. And it's fascinating uh, how, in, in in particular, in durable markets, uh, in all well, in lots of different markets. Uh, you, you, you pick up an OECD report and they'll say, well, you know, our projection for auto sales or for you know, appliance sales or for whatever is that a hundred and something percent of the growth in this market is going to come from Asia. Parenthetically, most of it from China, close parent. Uh, so if you're a big global company, as troublesome as it is to do business in China, you know, that's where you're focused, right? Because that's where all the growth is. Yep. Uh, that's got one whole set of implications. I would just note that in the current political moment, uh, we're looking at, again, sort of the, the forces of the current administration, you know, the, 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 the direction, the trajectory of the current administration, but also several of the more progressive Democratic candidates uh, are not big fans of global trade. And so if it's bad news that these companies have looked to other markets for growth and maybe not paid as much attention to the U.S. as they might, um, is it better news or worse news if they're foreclosed from that growth and made to pay attention to the U.S. <laughs> That's a classically scenario question, right. uh, one with which I wrestle in lots of different settings, and I got no answers. I mean, I, that, yeah, that is fascinating. Well, what what we got a, we got a few minutes left. I'm um, conscious of time. What about? And I know this is probably a topic for a whole podcast hour on its own. Um, where does the where does the future of the environment? You know, you, you basically talked about the long now and. Um, preserving the world for our ancestors, etc. But what if we don't have a world to preserve? 
Isn't that the biggest issue of all? Cliched. I mean, there'll be a world. I, it's, Will it be habitable? There'll be humans in it or not? But uh, I mean, it. it I. I it, it's gotten to the point where there is no strategy, no organizational strategy worth that label, you know, that deserves that label that doesn't take frontal account of climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's just, it, it is going to be massive in its direct and indirect impacts on every single institution, well, in the world, much less, you know, you know certainly in the United States. So for a start, I think, you know, we've got to begin to get our arms around what all that means. Uh, I worry that there hasn't been a ton of, there's been a good bit of scientific work, uh, much of it terrifying. I've done pro bono work with the AGU and a number of other organizations whose whole bread and butter is looking at this stuff. and. (laughs) <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's terrifying, you know, it'll keep you awake at night. But it's terrifying, it'll keep you awake at night at kind of the existential level. I mean, you know, like, oh, my God, you know, it could be too hot to live in the southwestern United States. What we haven't really worked out is, okay, what does that mean? I mean, so those people are going to, many of those people will move. Where will they go? Right. Uh, what are the economic, you know, is that an opportunity or is that a problem? You know, what, and you stir all of that in with the demographic forces that are at play. You know, the U.S. was until about 12 or 13 years ago, uh, but certainly until, you know, certainly now, the U.S. was unique among developed countries in that we were actually, we had a fertility rate that was just above replacement. So we were the one developed nation that didn't appear to have the same ticking aging population time bomb like Japan. that the others do. Yeah. But that was because we had healthy immigration of people of childbearing age from cultures that valued families. Yep. I mean, yeah, people lived a little longer, and yeah, fertility ages got extended a bit, but the big driver was immigration, and that has turned way down. So you stir the aging issue on top of the climate issue, and yeah, it's we're looking at some pretty big challenges here. So is there, is there a positive note we can end on? <laughs> well, I mean, I think maybe... Two, one. I mean, in the end, it's funny. I had a hand in in, uh, in starting Wired magazine, and I used to sit around with my friend Kevin Kelly, who was also very involved in GBN and all our stuff. And I mean, we've been hanging out for ages, um, and we were just sort of musing that you know the world over simply divides into dystopians and utopians. Dystopians believe, oh God, we're screwed. You know, this is just these horrible things are awful the utopians believe not that we're headed for a utopia but that on balance we're going to figure our way through this you know ingenuity technological and otherwise will help us through and we were all utopians Uh, and so i and i guess you know i i still am 
in my heart of hearts, a utopian. So I, I'm, I'm convinced that we can find our way through this. Uh, I guess that's vaguely optimistic, but uh, it's going to be a slog because we've created a situation in which there's really no alternative. Right. Well, I mean, that, that, is, I mean, that is interesting. I, I, I think that's a, the, the difference between we're not talking about a utopia, but we're talking about having the ability and capability of, of getting ourselves not necessarily out of the mess, but not as deep into the mess. Well, the other thing I'll, I'll observe, I have a, a 26-year-old daughter um, who is totally committed to these issues, social mm-hmm. justice issues mm-hmm. and climate issues. And I mean, you know, she's very much a member of her generation. Uh, she takes them in some ways maybe even more seriously than I do. But at the same time, she's capable of seeing them from her vantage in a way I'm not. And maybe because she's only 26 and can't afford to see them any other way, doesn't see them uh, as, she sees them as enormously threatening and wrong and all of that, but she sees them as remediable, as things we can fix. So I'd end on, that would be my optimistic note that I think that younger people who bring a different kind of energy than I can bring a very different perspectives than I've got and very different expectations um, are going to be the engine that that get us wherever we go and I'm hoping that's a sustainable place uh, but it's not going to be me well that's <laughs> I think that's a, that's a point of optimism. I think that's something that's right. It definitely feels like it's a younger generation who is who is going to have to take on the mantle of of helping to solve these problems. And I, I fully agree with that a hundred percent. Which just brings me to like we kind of wrap, I'm gonna have time to wrap up. We've run out of time, which I, I'm sorry to hear. It just flew by. It was a well, great conversation. My, my great pleasure. I really appreciated talking to you. I really appreciated the conversation. This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.